You're listening to the Games Industry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor and I'm joined this week by Matt Handrahan, Hayden Taylor, and Chris String. We've got a couple of things to talk about this week, starting with the excitement over the Sony and Microsoft partnership. So the two companies have said they're going to work together. Uh, I believe it's like an agreement in principle or some sort of some such legal term. Um, they're going to work together on a number of technologies and solutions that mostly focus around kind of Microsoft's um, Azure cloud service. This is going to include looking into ways that Azure can be used to help boost Sony's existing game streaming services, so PlayStation Now um, and other content, and obviously it's looking much further forward. It's looking at improving the AI technology for, for, for their customers, looking at sharing some of Sony's understanding of image centers and semiconductors. Uh, but basically, we've just seen about 24 hours of headline of saying that basically the undertone is the console wars are over, Sony and Microsoft are working together. And it's like, that's not quite what's happened here. Yeah, this is Peace in our times. Definite, definitely, definitely not what's happened there. Um, it, to be honest, I think it's more, it's, uh, it's, it's Sony getting kitted out to go head-to-head with Xbox, basically, isn't it? I mean, it, the, yeah. the fact that Xbox, that Microsoft is the parent company of the Xbox brand and, the, and Microsoft will be benefiting to some degree from whatever, however well Sony does in cloud gaming from now on, Microsoft will benefit from it somehow. Um, I, it's not anything other than the fact that I guess fueled by Sony's strength of belief in its own brand, and the PlayStation can more than capably um, head off Microsoft in terms of cloud gaming. I actually think it's it's, all, it's almost more interesting from Microsoft's point of view. Like why, why would you? I can understand why they would they would sign a deal with Sony because they'd probably get some money out of it. But like there there was there would be a kind of a sensible argument to say, well, why, why would you why would you help out your main competitor to kind of you know, compete with you on the battlefield. You think that the future of gaming is going to be waged on? Well, the theory I've seen is that the two of them are, the two of them recognise that yeah, they are competitors to each other. But this is seen as a reaction to Google Stadia, mm-hmm. which seem, it seems to be a bigger competitor. So it's very much kind of the enemy of my enemy is my friend mm-hmm. kind of scenario. Well, Microsoft's a business to business company. I mean, we we because we, what we write about, we talk about their consumer business all the time, but. Um, you know, every GDC we have an interview with Microsoft just before the show where they talk about all the stuff they're going to announce. And it's always about Visual Studio and DirectX and Azure and Havoc and all these technologies, which have already opened to PlayStation Studios if they want to use them. They use them on iOS. They put them on Steam. Um, got, they actually put it all together at GDC as a game stack thing. They go there selling their services to these businesses. This is a massive deal for Microsoft. They've got one of the biggest companies in the world now wants to use their cloud gaming services. Sony would have gone to Amazon, I'm sure, probably maybe even gone to Google if they were it was available, looked at the cloud services that are available there and then opted for Azure. And there is that core benefit, which will be good. The good thing for consumers is that in theory, anything that Sony adds, uh, you know, it's a bit like the PUBG Fortnite thing, right? Where anything that PUBG does, cause it's all on Unreal, sort of benefits Fortnite and vice versa. Um, these two companies will, um, you know, anything Xbox does, you know, could help PlayStation, anything PlayStation does could help Xbox, which in turn won't help Google. Um, but, you know, it, it, yeah, it's not, it's still, t- you know, they do use the word respective services, though. They are they are talking about two different game streaming yeah. platforms here. And the only interesting thing is that we're not going to have, a, really have a competitive advantage in terms of company X's streaming platforms better than company Y's, because, it, you know, it's all built on the same technology. Um, because PlayStation Now's big problem is that, although it's been going for a while and it's the biggest streaming platform out there at the moment, they don't actually have the infrastructure that Microsoft have or Google have. Well, now they do. Um, they always had to partner with someone, so um, or 
groups of people. So yeah, it's, it's good news for Microsoft, um, but it's also great news for Sony. It kind of shows that they are investing in this too, because they've been very quiet about it. Yeah, well, I, I think actually we've we've sort of pointed towards this with some of our content of late. We've been a little bit prescient about this one. I remember right after Stadia, we did a roundtable piece, and one of the points I made is that you know now Sony really needs a proper partner for its for its cloud push because there are only a small handful of companies in the world that can actually you know can actually service this kind of this kind of platform. Amazon's one, Google's another, and Microsoft is another. And Sony did need someone to be to get its back. And I just assumed it would probably just be a deep partnership with Amazon. I didn't actually foresee this thing happening. Um, and then Rob Rob Fahey in a recent editorial for us, which was actually about Microsoft and Nintendo kind of working together <coughs> a little bit more closely, actually just said, you know, that the future in which Microsoft and Sony partner up on certain things is not is not completely out of the question just because of the shape of the future. The future of the industry is taking a shape where people can work together and still remain in competition because they can just work together on other aspects of the business than just who sells the most games and so on. So, so yeah, we definitely, this is definitely, this has been, this has sort of been coming. I, I still think it's a, it's a reasonably uh, surprising piece of news, but it's definitely, it's already good for consumers because what Sony's done is it's just chosen the, the, the cloud infrastructure that's already being, you know, honed for the kind of games that it wants to put out there. Um, more, much more so than any other partner would have been able to provide for it. So whatever Sony's cloud uh, cloud platform is going to turn into is going to be better as a result of this deal than it would have been, say, with Amazon. I think it, think it also shows this is going to be a content thing. Uh, you know, it's... Mm. Sony's platform will be good, Microsoft's platform will be good, Google's platform will be good. Microsoft has a lot of content. It's acquired a load of studios to get that content. Sony already had a huge number of studios anyway, and it was putting out quite a lot of content. Is the, the only thing about with Google, whether what can Google offer um, that uh, uh, will get people using its services over um, the rivals. And so far, I think the biggest selling point is probably YouTube. So um, I think that's what we're going to... I think that's what... The, it's interesting. I think we're going to talk less about you know tech and more about what are the games, what, what's, what's going to get people signing up to, to which service. I think it does really... You know, Google needs... The, Google does need to respond to this in some way because it does really highlight, you know, when you when you look at a deal like this between Sony and Microsoft, you can kind of already see or get a very good idea of what their services are going to be like, just because just based on the way their businesses already operate and the kind of the kind of products they already have. Um, but with Google, we still really don't actually know what Stadia is yet, like not in any meaningful sense. We know. We know that you'll be able to play, you know, Assassin's Creed on your mobile or whatever, and you'll be able to very quickly, you know, tr uh, progress from a YouTube video to a gameplay experience. But you know, the actual shape, form of it, I mean, we, we know almost nothing about it. And, and this, that's not a good look for Google in light of this kind of deal because this is a show of great sort of confidence in cloud from both Microsoft and Sony purely because. They currently are competitors in the gaming space, so they obviously believe they've got strong enough brands to coexist and to grow their businesses, even when you know one's giving money to the other for, for the technical underpinnings of it all. It's quite quite an interesting development. Yeah, I, but the thing is, there is an assumption that I mean, I make all the time is that Google's service will be a subscription service, like PlayStation Now is, like Game Pass is. Actually, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, it might not be, and in which case viewing it it's a competitor in a different way you know it, it's more about standalone streaming applications i i do think i do think i'm wary that consumers will be willing to spend 50 60 dollars whatever streaming a game um but you know 
at the same time, um, uh, uh, some, in, you know, example, I, I spoke to Strauss Zelnick this week and he commented on the fact that um, gamers on average play three games a month where people, when they watch Netflix, they watch, you know, tons of different episodes, different shows. Um, and that those kind of numbers um, don't really lend themselves to a subscription service. Oh no, was it three? I can't remember. It was it was a number that was like, oh okay, if people are only playing this many games, then maybe they don't need to subscribe to a service that has hundred and twenty games on it. They'll just pick the ones they want. So yeah, it's it's. I guess it, whatever Google's business model is, if it is a subscription service, you'd have to back the ones that have the content, and that's um, Sony and Xbox. But if they if it's just a hey, watch Assassin's Creed trailer and then click through and play it, then maybe it's a maybe it's got. A, I don't, I don't. Again, I'm I'm wary about how popular that would be, but yeah. it's a it's a different it's a different proposition. I don't know how you can sell a cloud service that isn't subscription. You're like, I'm not I'm not saying it can't be done, but given that all other forms of entertainment, the cloud you know, streaming services and cloud services are subscription based, giving you access to a library of content. Yeah, the idea of of dropping sixty dollars on a, a Assassin's Creed that I can only that yes I can play across any device but is entirely reliant on a Google service that you know working like that would be the equivalent of someone launching a new streaming service where you have to buy the individual films and I just can't the only the only way I could see that working is if you buy Assassin's Creed at retail and it you know for PC for example and it gives you access to the Stadia version as well kind of like when you buy a Blu-ray version it gives you a free digital copy like the only way I can see standalone streamed items working yeah well I think you know from my perspective as someone who doesn't have hugely strong internet connection the the issue I have with buying games like buying and downloading games is how long they take to download but the problem is I don't think I'd be able to stream a game in, you know, in a decent enough level to, to make it playable and enjoyable for exactly the same reason they take ages to download. So, yeah, I'm kind of with you on that one. I don't really understand how that's going to work out. But, you know, that's you know, it's sort of a problem for the future, I suppose. Getting back to Sony and Microsoft, I'm intrigued to see how this because this is this is purely for um, their respective cloud services. Microsoft has already announced it's doing Project X Cloud, but has also announced multiple Xboxes for the next generation, or has said it's working on a number of Xbox consoles that may well have included the Xbox One SAD, the S All Edition, All Digital Edition. Um, I'm intrigued to see how cloud gaming plays into playstation's next plans because like because what little they've announced of playstation 5 even though they refuse to call it the playstation 5 it's definitely the playstation 5 because what else would they call it um the only thing they've announced of the playstation 5 so far is that it's got a disk drive that's got a solid state and therefore is not entirely reliant on the cloud so i'm intrigued to see whether they're going to treat cloud gaming as kind of a a complementary service kind of an extra thing that you can do with your console or if it becomes a whole device of its own i don't think we're going to know that until you know for months and months yet but i'm intrigued to see how how they use that this technology whether it is part and parcel of the 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 next playstation console or if it is a separate service that they put across various devices yeah well i mean it's it's interesting to to kind of speculate on exactly what sony's thinking about the next sort of four or five years is gonna is, is actually about because Microsoft is much, much noisier about uh, about its kind of hopes for the cloud, and it's very vocal about Netflix for gaming and stuff. And Sony has, I think you pointed this out earlier, Sony hasn't really been as upfront about all that stuff, even though it's got the best bases to work from with PlayStation now. It's already got the biggest cloud, the biggest cloud streaming service out there, but it hasn't really been as kind of forward about this. And yeah, it'd be 
the specs of its console do look like more like just a continuation of what we already have. Whereas maybe you'd speculate that Microsoft is working on multiple Xbox views. Would one of them be specifically with the cloud in mind? You know, not not necessarily not necessarily a powerful machine. Maybe quite cheap. Just something that may, maybe can do a little bit of processing on the front end, but with you know, Project X Cloud running it on the back and just make it an extremely accessible machine to get to. I mean, that that's a machine I would buy. I will say that. Mm. PlayStation has that um, has a slight problem in terms of um, uh, well, not a problem. It's a great problem, but their big obstacle is that their consoles are popular everywhere. Whereas Xbox's console is very popular in the US, it's very popular in the UK. There's a few other markets out there that's really popular in. But they're often very developed markets that Xbox does very well in. Whereas PlayStation's pop consoles are popular in Brazil, in India. You know, it's just like it's popular in markets where, you know, cloud infrastructure, that kind of stuff. So whenever they're investing in, whenever they have to invest and discuss these things, they're looking at territories actually where, you know, even digital's not very much of a thing. Um, so it's this, it's it, they, they they often they often hedge their bets a little. They often you know you know try lots of stuff. So it's always a always going to be a case of upgrading for them. There are markets that PlayStation's huge in that doesn't have really have a digital business at all. So it's that's why they'll have a disk drive, and that's why they'll have um, and that's why it'll always be a case of transitioning them from uh, or you know even if people don't want to transition, but it's the reason why they have to kind of offer everything because they've got so many different types of players in um, different markets with different budgets and capabilities and all that kind of stuff. Aidan, you've been discussing uh, some interesting legislation or some interesting proposals from the EU as to tracking people's working time and how much, how much, how much, how many hours people are putting in uh, in at their jobs. Tell us a little bit more about why this might or might not mean the end of crunch. So the uh, the, the basic idea behind it is that the European Court of Justice has ruled that uh, employers have to have a I can't remember the exact terminology, but basically a very like practical, rigorous system for tracking the work hours of all of their employees. And the idea is that I think um, it comes it comes from uh, something which happened in Spain, which found out that fifty I think about fifty three percent of overtime um, was left kind of untracked, unaccounted for, definitely unpaid. Um, so yeah, the idea is by having this system they can actually enforce the european working time directive which is 48 hours a week uh yeah not not able to work sorry start that again yeah enforce the european working time directive which is states that employees can't work more than 48 hours a week unless they voluntarily in writing waive their rights um so if, if they you know send send a letter saying i'm happy for you to work me to death then the employers are absolutely allowed to do that um, but yeah, so the, the reason why this, this would hopefully, hopefully affect crunch is that it basically means employers would have to get written permission from every single one of their staff in order to, um, yeah, in order for crunch to happen, um, because any, any hours that are logged above that, above the, above the 48 hours, uh, employers could, could face fines. There is a theoretical possibility of prison sentences as well, although that's, that's that's not guaranteed, but that is that is potential. Um, so it's it's not like a perfect system because employers can can bake um, into into their employment contracts. They can say that 
yeah, they, they can say that, you know, you as part of your employment contract, you waive your rights to the European Working Time Directive, which, yeah, which, which they do, but you are, an employee is allowed, like, even if that's part of your, part of your um, contract, you can just, you can revoke that straight away. Like, they're not actually allowed to bind you to that in any way. Like, it's EU legislation, so you can always just opt straight back out, or opt straight back in, I should say. The problem is, is if every single member of staff has it in their contract, then it just becomes kind of baked into, like, the studio culture, and then it requires dissent, effectively. Um, but this is where unions could potentially come in and really, really help support workers in this context, because then they have a you know, collaborative bargaining chip to say, well, actually, if we all do this, then it's not a problem. So it's got a lot of potential, but it's also it's not an airtight solution, unfortunately, just because the nature of crunch being so culture driven means that there are ways to quietly encourage crunch in spite of this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> As uh, Brendan pointed out in one of his recent articles about crunch, um, you know, people just people will just work late. They'll want to work late. There'll be people that don't have a problem with it, you know, or rather don't realise that it is causing them a problem. They will work late anyway. I mean, we, we our job is one where sort of overtime, personal time, work time sort of blend into one very often, you know. Um, sure. If you t- if you totaled up our the hours we actually work over the course of a year, it probably would be higher. If you factor in travel time and all of this stuff, it probably would be above forty eight hours. And again, mm-hmm. you know, it's unpaid and it's not recorded or any of these things. Um, well, but but also it's sort of not feasible to actually implement that and still do this job as well as it can can be done. I suppose just because there is there's loads of grey area kind of time. I mean, I I I would like. Crunch be brought under control by something like this. But there are all these uh, sort of fuzzy areas around the edges where, where it could very easily like fall away. Absolutely, yeah. but I mean one one of the one of the big problems with crunch, although there are many, is that a lot of the overtime goes unpaid and uncompensated. Um, whereas this, so even if all of these people waive their rights and they work hundred hour working weeks, those hours still have to be recorded. Um, and so because it's down to individual EU member states to say how this is implemented, um, it's not unreasonable that, that all, if not most, um, would, uh, would basically say any, any hours recorded over the, over the however much it is that you kind of submit to um, has to be compensated either with sort of additional pay or time off or anything like that. But the point is, it's like, the, these these crunch overtime hours, they are just lost to the ether. Like nobody knows how many hours they work fully. Like there's no real record. They just know that they have spent the last like six months working twelve hour days, you know, six, mm. seven days a week. And this at least has a record of that, which means people can, even if they have to, you know, work themselves to death, they can potentially get properly compensated. Or also, you know, employers could be <laughs> we might get an insight into who the worst employers really are because it takes it takes people coming forward to actually expose crunch, and if you know if if people are allowed access to this data, or if this data is published anyway, then we'll have a real have a real insight into who the culprits are. I yeah, think I'd that... be interested, like you know, when you get those Apple reports at the end of the week, which says you use your screen time was X for the week or something like that. I think I would love to know. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I could probably I, half the time I could probably control it myself. You know, I was like, oh, I see. Hang on, I did X amount of overtime. I didn't. Re- that's a lot. Um, perhaps I didn't even realise. I think that'd be interesting. I think is 
thing is with EU and the, and the UK, the whole of EU really, is that um, a lot of the big crunch stories are coming out of America at the moment. Mm. It's not not all of them, um, and it's because they don't have as good employment laws as we do. We do have things like the minimum time directive, which even if companies like in the UK, and I know several of them have like um, put in their contracts that you waive the right, they they put that in because a week before deadline you might have to do more. Mm-hmm. Um, and but they because nat- the culture of the of Europe and particularly other territories, not so much the UK completely, but they sort of edge away from it. I found it really fascinating. We did the Best Place to Work Awards judging. Mm. I decided to go back about, about three or four weeks ago and look at it. Well, I looked at the uh, the overall sort of numbers for every company that took part. So we had like 60-odd companies, I think, we looked through. And not a single one of the employees out of those 60 companies. Now, of course, those companies that put themselves forward are, view themselves as being quite good places to work. So let's, you know, let's, you know, none of the ones that thought themselves bad put themselves forward. But not any one of those employees, well, there might be one or two, but generally speaking, the, the scores were very high when they said they don't feel they do unreasonable amounts of overtime. So it's just like, it's, um, it's and, I, and I, I don't know if that, I guess when we, whenever we, if we ever bring the awards to the US or something, maybe we'll, we'll see a slightly different shift where there's lots of people that think they do unreasonable amount of overtime. Um, I'd be interested to know how bad how bad the problem actually is. In, in I know it has been bad, you know, we, Rockstar as well, and I know um, other studios that you know it, even the winners of the best places said that used to we used to have a culture of crunch and we've managed to eradicate it and this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So it's um, I'd be interested to know if it's how severe it is in in our country with wonderful uh, all of our employment laws is compared to um, mm-hmm. compared to the US. In theory, this sort of thing should be easy to track, as you say, Chris. Like, you know, you, your phone gives you kind of a screen time report on how much time you spent on your phone, um, and in what t- which type of apps you've been used. In my case, I've spent far far too much time on my phone in general. But um, like most, certainly in tech industries and, and development, like you're usually logged into your computer. You're usually um, logged into some sort of software. So there must be a way of just kind of tracking that, and then that kind of opens itself to abuse and you'll get you'll get that one smart ass that's like right if i log into my computer and leave it overnight or leave it or t- yeah, yeah leave it and then log out whenever i'll get an extra four hours and i won't have actually done those four hours but by and large most people are logged in using um using specific types of software probably logged into like specific kind of studio or system accounts so it must be able to track the activity so this shouldn't be hard to track if not enforce in theory yeah i think it's what is the outcome of that though i do wonder about this i was you know because probably the single biggest cost in making games is person hours basically it's actually paying the staff to make the games once they've got computers and an unreal license or whatever it's just the time that they can spend actually doing doing the work so if you do have you know these horror stories of crunch 12 hour days or 15 hour days for, for six for six straight months that's Kind of the level of accusation um, over at NetherRealm. I mean, if, if that if that if that if that could then be retroactively compensated, it would sink certain companies. Because well, because I, because the, that that kind of culture is is sort of basically part of the balance sheet, isn't it? Like it's 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 an it's an unquestioned reality of making games for certain companies, or, or it seems to have been. I mean, so if you then had to go back and pay those people for their time, I that there's no way some companies will be able to get through that. I mean, my immediate response to that is then your your business model isn't viable if you can't afford to pay your staff for the hours that they do. But also, you know, I understand that games, you know, sometimes margins can be pretty tight. So, like, there are other ways you could do it. You don't necessarily have to pay people back with money. You could pay them back with, you know, uh, toil, effectively. 
And if you spend mm-hmm. six months crunching and, you know, you end up basically like three months holiday, like after the game has been released, and obviously it's a bit different with games as a service, but, you know, after the game has been released and things have quieted down a bit, you can, people get a lot of, you know, they can effectively just spend that time and just reclaim that and go on holiday or whatever the hell it is they want to do. Like it doesn't, again, it would be down to how the individual EU member state wants to do it, but if if cash is cash is harder to come by you could do a mixture of the two or just toil like there are there are definitely ways of doing it yeah no i, I wasn't saying that it's an issue that, that companies would really struggle in the face of it it would be a good thing like some companies would need to face up to to, to be confronted in, in like with data that proves just how much they rely on on on, on work overworking people just to just to make their business run it's absolutely what certain companies would need. I just think it would be interesting to see it put into practice, but obviously at the same time, yeah, I, I can't imagine very many companies in the games business overall would really be enthusiastic about having this, this to answer to. The thing is, it would just make them, you know, this is the thing that came back with all the best places to work awards sort of winners crunch questions I asked them. And it was all like, they said, well, you just, you know, you just end up going, right, so if you've got a situation where your staff are crunching, then then you you do less work. You know, you, you reduce the scope of the project. You change. You go. Do you really need to? Do we need to invest so much time in that thing? Can we drop that thing? Is that going to be important? You start just looking in the margins, just going. Actually, maybe some. Maybe if we got rid of this, that will save the time. That will reduce time. The QA team and all this kind of stuff. I'm a little bit concerned about Spatch's um sort of monitoring things. I actually watched an episode of Black Books last night where um. Uh, one of the characters talked about a new piece of technology that monitors toilet visits and scans your retinas every 80 seconds mm-hmm. just to make sure you're still you. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah. Uh, but um, so there we are. We all, we'll all be, you know, they'll, they'll know when we're not working. That's the, uh, you know, when we decided to take a 10 minute break. But, um, but you know, I'm sure they wouldn't. Right? That's right. We can trust our employees. Um, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it, it's a fair point. Like, then it does open itself once you once you start getting things into like you know numbers and like working out exactly how much time people are spending. Yeah, you can be like, well, yes, you're not working overtime, but you're only working you know seventy five percent of the time that you're in the office because the other twenty five percent is sitting at your desk thinking or watching YouTube videos or something. So yeah, it's, there's there's definitely definitely open to abuse. Like I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry. I just uh, yeah, just to no, continue was... though, on Hayden, I, I know that I noticed. Um, Sort of very, very prominent uh, games lawyer Jazz Purewell on twi- Twitter effectively dismissed the idea that this that this could actually have a, have an impact on crunch culture. Um, did you see any other dissenting voices? Was I, mean, I, I found that an odd tweet because it didn't articulate at all in any way why it would work. It was just a very yeah. sort of glib dismissal he, of the idea of it overall. He, he didn't he didn't respond to uh, any of my attempts to contact him either. So I'm not really sure what to make of that, but. Um, no, not really. Uh, I think there's uh, I, there's a, a VR programmer. I, is, there's, I know a VR programmer who's in my D&D group, and he was chatting to me about how he thinks it's probably not going to work. Like, it's not going to have that big of an impact for kind of the reasons we've said today, really, where it's like, you know, it's baked into the contract that you waive your rights to the European Working Time Directive and things like that. But So I think there's a certain amount of, like, yeah, scepticism from game developers who are like, well, I mean, we get worked to death all the time and this is just the reality and, and how is this really going to affect us? But the thing is, ultimately, it's like it's it's a it's a complex issue. It's really difficult to tackle. And just any systems and structures put in place with the intent of helping should theoretically at least help a little bit. 
So yeah. it's the, the it's encouraging to see that it's an issue that you know the ECJ is aware of, and you know maybe not specifically in relation to games. I'm just, I don't know how much <laughs> how much attention they pay to the games industry, but overworking in general, it's an issue they're aware of, and it's something which they want to do something about. So I feel like some thought has gone into this, and yeah, even if it's not a perfect system, it's better than nothing. Yeah, it adds a layer. It, it could add a layer of transparency, as you might. Yeah, I, I think that's on an area think, that's had really no substance before. Like it's it's a word that means a great deal, I, but very little of it quantifiable. And maybe this is a way of actually. I, I think you. Sorry, I, I think you're right there, Matt. Like tran transparency, I think is ultimately the main gain that the industry will get from this. Is just a level of transparency, like. Employers will know how much they're overworking their staff because, again, like the problem with crunch is like because it's a it's such a cultural issue, and employers are often quite complicit. And they're even if it's because that they're overworking and they don't even necessarily notice how much other people are overworking. They might see the reports and be like, "Jesus, what are we doing? This is a bad scene," and try and you know try and address the issue. So transparency, it's good. It's good for employees who. Can actually have a real a real look into how many hours they're being overworked by, and it's a good a good look uh, a good good thing for employers who can really see the extent to which they're overworking their staff, and hopefully that will lead to like internal changes or means of compensation and things like that. So it's not going to just come in and just fix the problem of crunch, but it will hopefully help. Sort of, it's part of like a a, a larger systemic change. I think. Yeah, it's probably the the right way to do it. I, mean, I think. Yeah, but the 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 walkouts at Riot and so on. I think I think people have started to get this idea that, that the the gaming workforce, the the games industry's workforce, is kind of seething with anger and resentment and about to rise up and so on, just because of like that that kind of outlier of an event there. But but actually, I think you know if, if crunch is ever going to be tackled, it probably is going to be like this, sort of like piece mm -hmm. by piece, layer by layer, until there's a way of looking at the culture of it quantifying it and and then the right sort of questions can be asked without whole businesses having to blow up and you know workforces having to walk out and that kind of thing so hopefully it does come lead somewhere productive yeah we can only hope <laughs>
So I'm, I'm sure I've heard that Ubisoft are working on an unannounced IP, unless I've confused that with someone else, but I'm sure I've heard that repeatedly. Possibly, and you'd hope that there is a, a nice mix. There's at least one new IP in there just to kind of keep the the portfolio growing. But I don't. I, for me, I, I, I think I, I I jokingly tweeted this on um earlier in the week. I reckon it's going to be the the, the heavily rumoured Splinter Cell, the also rumoured Watch Dogs three set in London, and a new Rayman Raving Rabbids because it's been a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, no, but that's the thing. What is a AAA IP to Ubisoft? Is it is it does it need to be Far Cry, The Division, Assassin's Creed, Watch Dogs? Is Matt, is a new Mario Rabbids a AAA IP? Um, is is it just dance? Is it just this year's Just Dance? <laughs> I, do, I think that might be a stretch. I don't know. It used to be. It used commercially. It used to be a, you know right up there. Um, so yeah, it's like what what is what is the uh, what is that um, thing? I mean, I'm holding out for a sequel to. I'm, I'm holding out for New Prince of Persia. That's what I'm. Uh, that's the, yeah. That'd be nice. That would be a, that'd be a, a delightful change. Um, or something a little bit lighter, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it could be. Ubisoft do do new IP. They did one last year in Starlink. That was a big launch for them. It didn't do very well, but it, it was a big launch, a uh, big product. Sorry, and um, it was for Honor. Was that the year before? I can never keep up. So they, yeah, new for, IP for makes Honor, sense. They do. For Honor's probably due a sequel. It, it managed, it's managed to build quite a community for itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, t- I take a new Splinter Cell. That's for sure. I mean, the thing is, I just I, I would like Cell. it. If, so are they going to release another Assassin's Creed this year? I kind of lose track. No, this, I, it, it must. So, I think they're due a year off because they they took a year off um, before Origins, yeah. but Odyssey was already a year into production, which is why that then. So I think I think those games are on a three year cycle now. So Origins came out. This and then that team or yeah yeah that that team will then have the Odyssey year this year and then next year will be so, the next one from the Origins. They've team. already announced that Assassin's Creed's taken a year off this year. So, yeah, yeah it's definitely okay, not right. Assassin's Creed. Yeah. It sounds like a Watch Dogs year as a result, you know. Mm. It's, but yeah, yeah, it's got to be a Watch Dogs year, surely. Like, yeah, um, I don't know if we're going to see Beyond Good and Evil this year because still we have only only still seen <laughs> cutscenes. Um, so whether or not that game even exists in any playable form is is highly up for debate at this there point. There was definitely a demo, wasn't there? I think there was a demo, but it was like kind of rough and pure and, and very much like a tech it was demo a very, it was a very game demo exactly. I think I think they, yeah, they hadn't really was... built any content for it just like a, a basic they had a basic engine and a few ideas thrown into it yeah it was, it was something like it was like a pre-alpha demo and it was literally I think it was just people fighting on top of a floating car and there was absolutely no kind of context no, it Future was just game. it was more the mechanics than it was a vertical slice <laughs> the last the Michelangelo's last game Wild I say last game it's not out yet either I think I saw that what 2015? I think I saw it in 2015. Um, and I actually saw a demo and they were playing it and they were showing me it all. And that was in twenty that was October twenty fifteen. That was it. Paris Games Week, I remember now. Um so um I will, you know, as far as I'm concerned, he doesn't he sort of makes demos and then goes off and makes something else before he finishes it. Um, <laughs> do you think uh, uh, do you I'd think love to, I'd love to see Bo- both. Do you think Skull and Bones is running scared from uh, Sea of Thieves, Chris? <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Oh, they, they, I mean, I, you, you, <laughs> so, the um, Skull and Bones is a is quite a different um, sort of game. Um, it's like a proper serious pirate game, like you know, CFEs is a Pirates of the Caribbean type experience, and Skull and Bones is like war 
warfare on the seas. Um, yeah, there's, there's so, quite there's something oxymoronic stuff. about a serious pirate game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, it's, I think it's based on reality in, in some ways, you know, it's yeah, sort yeah, of Assassin's sure, Creed sure. combat. Based on reality in some ways, but then they've definitely teased like there's going to be a Kraken in the game yeah, at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Skull and Bones is basically uh, the Black Flag multi- Black Flag made a multiplayer game in the style of Forana, right? Yeah, hmm. yeah, yeah, I guess it's, it's, like, it's like, if you think about Raving Rabbits, had that dancing mode. And then that became Just Dance. I think this is, they're trying to recreate that, right? They're trying to see if they can create a massive hit out, out of a, a side section of another game. Um, yeah, but, yeah. The, the, the problem with that, though, is like I, I, played, I played Origins and I played Odyssey. And uh, Odyssey has quite a large like naval shipfaring component to it. God, it got boring. I mean, just uh, the hassle of constantly getting attacked by other boats and having to board and, yeah. and all this other stuff. So, I, I, I mean... Yeah, perhaps they can they can turn that into an entire game, but it doesn't feel substantial enough for me. Now, the thing I would, would like the most, I would like another Splinter Cell, because I want to see Ubisoft make a game that isn't a bloody open world. You know what I mean? Like I, I'd like to see Ubisoft make a, a quite a, like a nice, streamlined, stylish action-adventure game, because they used to do those. You'll get an open-world Splinter Cell. It'll be, it'll be their answer to Ground Zeroes or uh, Metal Gear Solid V. Yeah, I was, I was literally thinking exactly the same thing. Hmm. <laughs> which I which I'm mildly intrigued by. I'd love I'd love an open world stealth game, but also I would much prefer a proper good Splinter Cell. Because so what was the we'll last see. Splinter Cell game? Wasn't it Conviction? That was great. That game. Uh, no, it was Blacklist. Oh. The one that everyone forgot. <laughs> oh, I see. I quite like that game. I know. Maybe I'm do. thinking of that uh, one. Yeah, I mean, I I, I just remember, I remember like yeah. I, there's been poor Splinter Cell games, but I don't remember the last couple being anything other than. Than good, and certainly worthy of worthy of more to come. But you know, it is whether or not they can, they really think they're going to sell enough copies to justify putting that much money behind a game like that. Because yeah. I, I think the reason why this the series got put on the shelf was because it wasn't quite selling in the numbers that they wanted it to. And at this but, point, I don't know how many people really fondly remember Splinter Cell. That's my worry. Like, if if you if they do a stealth game now, because this almost goes back to the um, the conversation I had with Warren Spector about immersive sims, like anything where it's geared towards stealth or being tactical and taking your time. Well, that's just too much effort. People would rather go in all guns blazing. So, whatever they come up with for Splinter Cell this time round is probably going to be a a kind of a, a jack of all trades, master of none. Then that yes, you can do stealth. Yes, you can play a proper Splinter Cell, but you can probably just nick nick someone's assault rifle and run in and just murder your way through each level. I really hope that's not the case because that's not how you play Splinter Cell. But that makes it more appealing to a broader audience. It's true. I mean, it's a you know, it's a I, I for some reason the 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 other IP that jumps into mind when discussing this is Hitman. In that you know, it's it's a it's a very well liked IP by a certain number of people, but try as they might, IO hasn't quite managed to make it work in like the, the new context of blockbusters where things cost so much to make and games have to be so big. It just isn't quite popular enough to, to be justified. Blacklist really suffered because it launched like in 2013, right before the new consoles arrived. It was, mm. it was a, it was a, it was launched in the dead zone in between machines. Um, it, and also the one game that did shine out during that time was Grand Theft Auto V. So it sort of, was dwarfed by that. Um, uh, I, you know, the one before it, Conviction, actually sold really well. Um, so you never know. I mean, I'm sure it's a franchise. You know, Ubisoft like to make stuff. Ubisoft do stuff all the time that you know doesn't necessarily make commercial sense. So I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily rule it out. I mean, I'm still hoping for New South Park, um, but uh, <laughs> yeah. 
That is all we've got time for because we're dangerously close to the ground of their speculation. So why not go back and listen to previous episodes uh, in in the wait for the next one? All our previous episodes are on all good podcasting platforms. They're on Spotify as well. Uh, and you can find them on the website. And you can get your daily dose of news, analysis and insight into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. Transition. Musical transition, here it comes. And Hayden, you've been writing a, a lot about the U- EU. I'll start that again because I'm stumbling. Hayden. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. Hold back, you can do this. <laughs>